to turn that back to the Lord who is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of the honor. He is worthy of it all. Jesus, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you, Jesus, for this conference, Lord. We worship you. We magnify your name, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Well, praise the Lord, church. It is such an honor to be here and to stand in front of the school, in front of the people that I love the most. It has been amazing to spend these four years with all of you. If you wouldn't mind turning with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be starting at verse 31. Now, before I continue, I'd like to give honor where honor is due. Firstly, to the Lord who has blessed me and who has called me on this path that I did not think I would be on. <laughs> then to Brother McClintock and to Brother Jones who have given me this opportunity and who have trusted me in this pulpit. To my family and to my leadership back home who without their guidance, I would not be the woman that I am today. So Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 31, ending at verse 32, and I will be reading in ESV. All of Urshan say amen. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Tonight I would like to preach to you under this title, Forgiveness, Can You Imagine? Y'all may be seated. So I don't know if anyone has noticed, but my title is a reference to something. I don't know if anyone will know it, but I know it, and it makes me excited. <laughs> I will give you a hint, it is from a musical, because for some reason all of my sermons have a musical in them. <laughs> so if you guessed it, it is from Hamilton the Musical, <laughs> um, and it is from the song, It's Quiet Uptown. And some background on what's happening on, in this song. So our characters, Alexander Hamilton and his wife, Eliza, have moved because, well, Alexander isn't exactly an upright Christian man. Alexander cheated on his wife, Eliza, which cut him off from the rest of his family. And to make matters worse, he ended up giving advice to his eldest son that would later result in his death. In this song, Alexander would take Eliza on a walk every evening down the lengths of their town, trying his best to reconcile the relationship, to get her to start talking to him again, to fix what he had done. And night after night, he would walk with her, apologizing, trying to get her to accept him again. And it isn't until at the end of the song where she finally takes his hand in hers and she repeats to him what he's been telling her this entire time. It's quiet uptown. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? Such a small and simple act like that. I, I have trouble imagining this kind of forgiveness. We're not given any information as to how many days Alexander and Eliza would walk together before she finally forgave him, but I'm guessing it wasn't in an instant. I'm guessing it took time to finally forgive him, but even then I have to wonder how long did it take for her to let go of all of those feelings of hurt and betrayal and anger. How many days she had to silently forgive him because when she saw him, she only saw the hurt that he had caused her. 
at different points in our lives, we've heard of incredible stories of forgiveness throughout the Bible. And most, the most notable one in my mind would be the story of Joseph, where he forgave his brothers for sell, selling him to slavery. And we know the command of Jesus to forgive others as he, as he has forgiven us. But I think sometimes, at least for me, it's easier said or read than, than to actually do. And I think that this comes from a lack of knowledge on our part on what forgiveness truly is. <laughs> and when you type in on Google, what is forgiveness, the definition that pops up is um, the action or process of forgiving or being forgiven. And if you even go to the root of that word forgive, it just says stop being angry. That's it. It's, we, have a, we as a society, we don't even have a good definition of what forgiveness is. So what is forgiveness? When you look to scripture, it all says to forgive just as the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven you. Okay, but what does that mean? If you're anything like me, you're probably wondering, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Well, so how do you forgive like Jesus? Or how does Jesus forgive? Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while I was learning for myself what forgiveness looked like, this post came up and it was entitled, what forgiveness is and what it isn't. And I wish I had time to share everything that it said, but there was a point, the last point, and it was so profound to me. And it was talking about reconciliation and how it requires repentance and how sometimes those relationships won't come back together because of that. But it said something about Jesus on the cross that in the middle of his pain and in the middle of his suffering at the hands of others, he looks up to heaven and says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He was dying. No one was coming to him asking him for forgiveness. No one was coming to reconcile with him. But he forgave anyway. He still died so that he could pave a way of forgiveness for them. He died for people who may never come to him, and yet he still did it. So what does it mean to forgive like Jesus? It means to forgive without expecting anything back. Forgiveness is never getting an apology from the people who hurt you, but you still give them that forgiveness. Forgiveness is acknowledging that you are hurt, but giving up your right for revenge. Forgiveness has everything to do with your choice to let go. Without forgiveness, you will be held back by your anger and by your hurt. And I'm not saying that your hurt isn't valid because it is. God will take that and he's going to use it to take you to places and talk to people that you may never have been able to without it. But if you allow it to hold you back, and if you don't forgive and you don't let go, you will stay exactly where you are. 
And y'all can stand with me. I'm coming to a close. And I'm not saying that once you finally forgive, God is going to zap you from heaven and everything's going to be okay. And life is going to, you're going to look at life through a different lens. Because it takes time. Sometimes it takes you every day looking up to heaven and saying, God, I'm angry. God, I'm still hurting. But Lord, I am choosing right now to forgive them. I am choosing right now to let go of all of this hurt and of all of this pain. And I give it to you. We lift our hands right now. I'm going to pray over you. Jesus, right now, God, you know the situations in their lives. Lord, you know everything that has happened in their lives, Jesus. Right now, I pray, Lord, that they'd be able to forgive. It may not look what they want it to, Lord. But I pray, God, that they would just give it to you, that they'd be able to let go, that they'd be able to forgive those as you have forgiven them, Father. I worship your name, Jesus. I thank you, mighty God. Praise the Lord, everyone. I have been looking over the landscape of our world, and I have brought you a message tonight. There's a war going on. I want everybody in this room to shout that as loud as you can. There's a war going on. You may be seated. When the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, that fateful night of the Passover, they went from being slaves to being a mighty army. Exodus 13 and 18 tells us, and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of Egypt. That word harnessed means they were armed and they were in battle formation. Israel who had been slaves, they were in servitude. They became people who were taking dominion over nations. And their captain was the Lord Jehovah. 273 times the Old Testament calls our God Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. Oh, saints of God, the people of God in the Old Testament were a mighty army. Then we go into the church age, the New Testament, of which we are a part. And we see the same thing. It was a different kind of fighting. It was a different kind of warfare. But it was warfare. The letters to the churches would say things like, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. It said things like, we wrestle not against principalities and powers. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We put on the whole armor of God. We fight the good fight of faith. We endure hardness as a good soldier. Those are military terms, and it tells me that the church of Jesus Christ is a fighting machine. It is a powerful army. <clears throat> now, the first century church, though they fought a different kind of war, they still brought down the 
Roman Empire, which was the mightiest army on the earth. The Old Testament and the New Testament tells us that the people of God go forth fighting. They forth, go, go forth taking dominion. They go forth fighting evil. They wrestle with darkness. They fight for freedom. So, Urshan student body, I want you to understand when you entered the kingdom of God, and I want you to just think about that for a second. When you got saved way back there in your home church or at camp meeting or youth camp, you were enlisted in an army. And you were called to be strong. You were called to endure hardships. You were called to get behind your officers, to stand shoulder to shoulder and take dominion. We don't have time to whine. We don't have time to get offended. We don't have time to do this stuff like that. We're an army. We're an army, the army of the Lord. There is a war going on. Look at your news feed. The kingdom of darkness has declared war on the kingdom of light. The apostle John said in Revelation 13 that the Antichrist will make war on the saints. And then when he was older, he said in 1 John that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. So war has been declared on us, on you precious young people. War has been declared. But oh, hallelujah, when I look around this room, saints of God and young people, we are well able to take the land. Hallelujah. I see some four-star generals sitting around this room. And I want to make sure that the Urshan Battalion is the most trained Christian Navy SEALs and Green Berets that has ever marched under the blood-stained banner of Jesus Christ. There are no summer soldiers and sunshine patriots in Winsfield. Amen. Give yourself a hand clap of praise because we have much to rejoice about. I believe that the Urshan group here tonight is the meanest, baddest, roughest, toughest outfit that's ever put on Christian camouflage. Hallelujah. We have a group of young people that are going to do great things. And I know that hordes of darkness are coming against you. I'm aware of that tonight. But we shall fight them in the prayer room. We shall fight them in our fasting. We shall fight them in our preaching. We will fight them. We will fight them in our preaching. But I'm telling you right now, we will never surrender. We're the army of the Most High God. But as in all armies, there is training and there is discipline. The harder the training and the discipline, the mightier the army. So tonight, kids, I'm the drill sergeant. And my message to you is that there's a war going on, and it's time to toughen up. It's time to toughen up. In the famous words of Winston Churchill, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And I know that God is going to help us. I know that the enemy is going to come in strong, but the war is going to be won by all of you. Amen. 
In my lifetime, I have observed that the enemy's strategy to defeat us is trying his best to turn the mighty church of Jesus Christ into a soft, weak, and lazy, wishy-washy social club. That's the enemy's strategy. There are some things, though, that you need to know as young people, and I believe as an elder I can teach you them tonight. You've got to have training and discipline to go forward. You cannot do all the dreams that you dream and all the things that you have, your visions, until you are trained and disciplined. In World War I, France was considered the powerhouse nation. The Napoleonic Wars of the 18th century had established them. Nations everywhere did what France did. They were just the best. And so when World War I broke out, Europe thought they'd be taken care of by France. France will see us through. We don't have to worry. Germany can be stopped. But little did the world know that in those days in April of 1917, France was not a mighty army. France had mutinies all up and down the front lines. It was widespread. The young men of France did not want to fight. Their leadership was a mess, making all kinds of messes. <clears throat> the French had forgotten the hard training to win wars. It is said of history that they wanted better food and more leave time. They forgot their wives and children. They forgot their families. They forgot their nation. They cared more about their fleshly desires than their, the fighting of the war. The French soldiers had become slaves to their fleshly desires. And young people, I want you to know tonight that great armies can falter, that mighty forces can lose their way. But we cannot afford a weak Christian army. The enemy is at the gates. Everywhere we look, there is things coming against the church. And we have got to bring ourselves to the understanding that we must discipline and we must train ourselves. In every generation of new recruits, this is true, everything hinges on you learning to control and discipline your flesh. How to get control of it. And so for the next few minutes, I'm going to try to teach you something that I have studied for weeks and weeks. And that's my Jesus. And Bible students, let me just say that if you don't remember anything I say tonight, study Jesus. Study him in the morning when you get up, study him at night before you go to bed. He is so worthy of your time. And I specifically want to study Jesus in Gethsemane. It is the most sacred and holy place next to the cross you can ever study. The captain of our salvation was there. The captain who was going to lead a mighty army. But he was there in Gethsemane teaching the Christian art of war. He was facing his greatest battle, the cross. And at Gethsemane, Jesus was going to teach his disciples and all of us how to do the hard things, how to train, how to discipline. Jesus was going to take human flesh and do something incredible with it. 
all the holiness, the justice, the wrath against sin was going to fall on that flesh. He was going to be the Lamb of God. And Jesus knew that flesh had to be disciplined. Flesh had to be trained. He was going to do great and mighty things with this flesh. But it had to be disciplined. It had to be trained. Calvary was going to open up a fount for the world for forgiveness of sin. The power of the Holy Ghost was going to fall. But here in Gethsemane, Jesus had to do something to make all that possible. I asked the Lord in studying for this tonight, Lord, what is the big lesson of Gethsemane? What would you want all of those young people to know about Gethsemane that you were saying, that you were teaching us? I truly believe that Jesus came to teach us how to live. So he's teaching some lessons in Gethsemane. And this is what I believe that I heard from the Lord. Make your flesh do what it doesn't want to do. Make your flesh do what it doesn't want to do. This is the very essence of great soldiers. This is what it's all about in winning wars. This is what it's about in doing great things for God. There is no great work done for God unless you rope in your flesh. We are living in a world that's gone mad about their flesh. And we are called to be the great army of God. And so if we are going to do great things, we must rope in our flesh. When you're going to do the big stuff for God, you have to have your flesh under control. Now look at our Lord falling on his face, sweating great drops of blood. These are words of a great struggle. Luke said that he was in agony when he prayed. Matthew said he went further, not just in distance, but in depth. And the writer of Hebrews described strong cryings and tears. You know what that tells me? That when you're getting ready to do great things, you've got to get to Gethsemane and you've got to wrestle your flesh under control. Jesus was teaching us that this is the way people win wars in the spiritual realm. They discipline themselves. They make their flesh do what it doesn't want to do. You look at any trained Navy SEAL or any Green Beret, you are looking at men and women who have taught their flesh to do what it does not want to do. I want you to look at Gethsemane in your mind just for a second. Our great Lord, the self-revelation of the eternal God, there on the ground wrestling with his flesh, his will, to do the greatest thing that flesh would ever do. And so he, he's been doing all this for some time, and he thinks, well, I'm going to go back and check on my generals, Peter, James, and John. See how they're doing. See if they're, they're getting this. There's something that's called the, the week of hell or hell week or something for the people that really train uh, deep things. And they go without sleep. They do all this stuff to learn how to be Navy SEALs. And there the Lord goes back. And there is the future church of Jesus Christ, the leaders of the mighty army, and they're on the ground asleep. 
And then Jesus made a declaration that night that absolutely echoes across eternity to all of us here. It is one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture, and you would be wise to study it all the days of your life. Keep it in your Bible. Put it up on your mirror in the bathroom. Take it to the prayer room. Jesus said this in Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it tonight. It's such a powerful verse. But I want to go over it real quickly. Watch. Pay attention to what's going on. Look at what God's doing. Look at what the devil's doing. Keep your eyes open. Look and see what's going on even right here at Urshan. Know what God is doing in the spirit. Pray. The training of prayer is absolutely essential in this. There's going to come temptation. But lazy, untrained recruits are always ripe for falling into temptation. The Spirit's willing. I think God puts something in every one of us. Maybe the breath of life. I don't know. But there's something in us that's willing to help. There's something in us working for good. And then he says this. The flesh is weak. Write that down because you don't want to ever forget that. Your flesh is weak. It has to be trained and disciplined. I think the Lord, what he was doing in Gethsemane on that ground and what he said in that verse of Scripture are linked. The Lord knew what was going on and what had to be done in order for him to do what he was going to do. It's showing us what the mighty God in Christ wanted to teach us about being a mighty army. We've got to wrestle our will and our flesh down to the ground no matter what it costs us. I read a book called The Boomers. It's a fascinating book by Helen Andrews. And she laid out a premise about the baby boomers of which I am part of. And her tagline on her book was, they promised the world freedom, but they delivered disaster. They destroyed all of our fundamental institutions. She did not say they were created by God, but I'm telling you they were created by God to hold culture together. Religion, they destroyed. Marriage, they destroyed. Morality, they destroyed. Family, and they're trying to do that more and more. Child rearing, government education. The baby boomers came into power and destroyed everything that held us together. They changed things more in the 20th century than the previous 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years. I don't think it was a coincidence that the huge outpouring of the Holy Ghost to, the, to those in the 20th, early 20th century was just chance. I think God saw the baby boomers coming. They were going to destroy everything. Never in history have things changed so quickly. The boomers ushered in an undisciplined life, untrained flesh, and they made it fashionable. They made it cool to be all the things that God says we cannot be. And not only did the baby boomers... 
generation wreak havoc in every area of Western civilization, but they invented new things that make our flesh weak. I have to warn you. I have to say again what the Lord said in the 21st century. The flesh is weak. And here we are living with our basic needs of our flesh are food, rest, and then affirmation or needing attention or the touch of another human. And the baby boomers came in and invented things that would give all of these necessary things of our life. They would make them addictive. The basic need of food, junk food, was invented by the baby boomers. Drowning everything in salt and sugar, processed food exploded in the 20th century. And it's all addictive. Our, our uh, relaxation, the need to take some time off, entertainment videos and video games and cable news 24-7. Steve Jobs put it all in a held hand advice. And it can be the most addictive thing you have ever handled in your lifetime. The basic need of affirmation. Good old Mark Zuckerberg came through there. And the social media platforms make us lust for affirmation. Lust for attention. And these things that God told us that our flesh should be trained and disciplined. The world has told us, let your flesh go wild. And it's given us all kinds of things that will addict our, us to them. And our flesh is just getting worse and worse and weaker and weaker. And here we are, the army of God, facing the end of time. And you new recruits, you've got to get in shape. You've got to get yourself trained. You've got to get yourself disciplined. There's a war going on, and we've got to win it. Our families are depending on it. Our churches are depending on it. The UPCI is depending on it. We've got to go to war, and we've got to win. And I'm telling you, you precious young people, we've got to train our flesh. We've got to say no. No is the greatest word in the English language. And I'm telling you, we are living in a self-worshiping, self-addicted world. But I'm telling you, I go back to my precious Jesus. When he said, "You're good. if you want to follow me, you know what? The first thing you've got to do, deny flesh. Deny flesh. You know, that seems like such a small little sentence, a quick little word there. But I'm telling you, Jesus, he knew what he was talking about. Jesus knew what to say. Deny your flesh. Deny it every chance you get. Tell it no every time you can. To put that phone up, turn off those video games, put up that junk that you don't need to be watching. I'm telling you, it's all addictive, but oh, I want to be an army that can take this nation, can take this world for the gospel. Oh, get your flesh under control. Get yourself to Gethsemane. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Christians in the very teeth of Rome, those that were on the front line in that generation, people that could be slaughtered at just the word of some Roman sergeant. And Paul, when he wrote to the church at Rome, he said things like this. Now, think about it. These are these people that, that are just, they're right there. They could be destroyed and they were on the front line and they were fighting for the church 
They were establishing the church in the earth. And this is what he said. I know that it in, that in me, that is my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He said, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Make no provision for the flesh. These are things written to the first century church. You'd think, oh, they're perfect. They do everything right. No, no. They had to rope in their flesh. They had to wrestle with their flesh. They had to discipline and train. I'll go on because there were just so many things that are written to the New Testament church. Uh, 1 Corinthians, keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Now, I'm talking about a bunch of kids, young people, that are living in a world that, that absolutely the flesh is everything. They feed the flesh constantly. Whatever the flesh wants to do it, we do it. I don't care how perverted it gets. I don't ha care how disgusting it is. If my flesh wants to do it, I'm going to do it. And here you are called to keep under your body. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lust have no confidence in the flesh. Abstain from lustly flesh, lust, fleshly lust. The army of the Lord must understand what we've got to do. And we've got to examine ourselves. Don't judge your neighbor. Don't look over there. You look at yourself. What are my weaknesses? And those are the ones that you've got to go to war with. You can't mind other people's business. You can't put your stuff on them. You just take care of you, yourself. In closing, I want to tell you a story of two men in 1917. Two nations, Norway and England, sent teams of men to be first in claiming the South Pole or Antarctica the last place on earth unclaimed. Norway chose a man named Emerson, and England chose a man named Scott. Emerson's team headed for the South Pole, 1,500 miles hard labor, three months it took them through unspeakable hardships. But they put down the Norwegian flag, they headed back home, and they made it completely safe. A month later, Scott arrived at the South Pole and saw the Norwegian flag and knew that it was claimed for another nation. He headed back with his team, but alas, they were so weak that they couldn't make it, and all of them froze to death on the frozen tundra of Antarctica. Roland Hunsford's book, The Last Place on Earth, compared the two men. And the difference in the two men was simply this, training and discipline. Emerson trained and trained and trained. He rode his bike from Norway to Spain to train for navigation. He learned to eat raw dolphin meat, so if he ever got shipwrecked, 
He lived with the Eskimos and learned how they dressed and what kind of clothes to wear. He learned that dogs don't sweat, and so you want to take dogs into the cold. Ice won't form on those, their skin. He learned the importance of putting out parameters from his food depot. For 20 miles in all four directions, every mile, he put a black flag so he could see it. But Scott did not prepare. Scott did not train. He didn't study ice and snow. He didn't study weakness. He put ponies out there, and they quickly froze to death. He used modern machinery that collapsed right away. His team's clothing was from England, nothing for the South Pole, and he put up one black flag. Scott could not do the big stuff because he was not trained disciplined and prepared. Young people, I want you to understand something, that when your flesh is trained and disciplined, opportunities open up. Miraculous things. Other people may call it good luck, but miraculous opens up to those that are trained and disciplined. Everything can go your way when you've got training and discipline because you can conquer anything that comes against you. And don't you see the enemy's plan? He wants all of us to be lazy, fall apart at the drop of a hat, collapse if things don't go our way. That will stop the army of God. But this tonight, and let's all stand, I want your little seat and where you're standing to become an altar right now. And I want you to close your eyes and ask God to help you in your discipline and in your training. You've got to go to Gethsemane. You don't know the condition of your flesh until you get to the altar, till you get to Gethsemane. Psalm 78 and 9 says this, The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back. In the day of battle. Let us lift our hands right now and begin to pray. God, you're going to have to help me. God, you're going to have to show me. I don't see the weakness in my flesh. The devil will hide it. I'll hide it from myself. God, you've got to show me. Because God, I want to do great things for you. Lord, I want my life to count. I don't want to get to the end of life, and I could never have made myself do anything. I want to do big stuff like Jesus did. I want an open up fountain for the world to be saved. Oh, kids, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. You have to do this. I don't care if your flesh is real weak. I don't care if you're addicted to some things. You're within the army of God, and we're going to help you. We're going to take care of you. We'll bring you back to life. We'll do whatever it takes to see you be saved. But I'm telling you right now, we've got to start the training right now. We've got to get ourselves ready. We've got to get ourselves in shape. God, show us our weakness. Show us where we need to get ourselves stronger. Help us, God, to do this thing. Lord, we got to hear from you. You've got to show me. You've got to tell me, Lord. I want to be ready to be in the army of God. Oh, young people right now, surrender your life to Him. Give everything to Him. Everything that's holding you back. 